Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of the Lord spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 1 Timothy 3, and starting at verse to verse 13. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Well, as uh, Rich mentioned a little earlier, we shared at our members' meeting on Wednesday that we want to prayerfully consider appointing new elders and deacons. And that is really, really exciting. It's really exciting because of what it reminds us. It reminds us that God is at work building this local church. He is growing the needs of our church family. And there's that need for us to prayerfully think about how we might meet those needs. It's a reminder that he is growing and equipping men and women to better understand his word and to live out his word. And God willing, a number of those men are going to be able to continue doing that in the offices of elders and deacons. But before we just share some names with the membership and then vote on whether those people can serve in that way, it's right and helpful for us to spend some time thinking about what those offices are and therefore who should serve in them. If you have joined our church or you're in the process of joining our church, you know that we have a document that we call our fellowship guide and it sets out the process that we do lots of things. So there's there's nothing hidden about how we do anything in our church In the wisdom of those who've gone before, we have a very clear structure for how we do lots of things. And there's a clear structure for appointing elders and deacons. Now, how we teach on that subject is different from time to time. Sometimes we read and reflect on those key passages in a members' meeting. But this time, 
We wanted to take time as a whole church family to think about this subject together. In God's great grace, there have been lots of people who've joined our church family over the last few years, and we want to think more deeply all together about what these offices are and who's to serve in them. So we're going to pause Exodus for a minute um, and spend a a few weeks, probably two, maybe more, uh, thinking about elders and deacons. And in fact, it's a lovely providence that we're doing this on the heels of Exodus 18. Because when you think about what we were looking at last week, Moses was on his knees and everything was becoming overwhelming for him. He desperately needed some leadership capacity. He needed some help to be able to do the work that he was called to do. And at that point in redemptive history, God's provision were a a whole raft of judges who together would be able to take on the responsibility for the smaller and the simpler cases, leaving Moses to be specifically responsible for the more complicated things that the Lord had called him to do. Now, when we get to the New Testament church, God's provision is different. But in many ways, it's born out of the same tension. God calls elders to be specifically responsible for prayer and for preaching, to be building up the church family, and God willing, we're going to get to them over the course of the next week or so. But there's a whole range of other needs and circumstances that need to be met in the church too. And some of them are met by the specific deacons who are set aside to fill that role. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. We're going to think about the importance of godly deacons, the significance of the work of godly deacons, and the qualifications for godly deacons. And we're going to start with the importance of godly deacons because there's lots of misunderstanding about the office of deacon. If you have joined our church family within the last five or ten years, it doesn't matter really how long ago it was, you might have come from a church that didn't have deacons. And that's going to shape your way of thinking. If you've been in a church, a faithful church, that was telling other people about Jesus and growing disciples that didn't have deacons, you might be thinking, well, do we really need them? And then you might start reading through your New Testament. And you would rightly see that there actually aren't that many references to the office of deacon. There's lots of references to deaconing, and actually in our English Bibles, lots of those words in the Greek are translated by words like serve, or servant, or minister. So just to give you a flavoring of that, if you go to Mark chapter 9, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the last and the servant of all. That is the Greek word diakonos, deacon. So anyone who wants to follow Jesus must be a deacon of all. Jesus says the same thing in John 12 when he's looking towards the cross. He said, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. All three references are that diakonos Greek word group. And Jesus even refers to himself as a deacon. 
So Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, literally to be deaconed, but to serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in a very real sense, every Christian is following the ultimate deacon and seeking to live out lives that are full of servant-hearted, ministering to other people, deacon work. We're all doing it. And if you've never seen appointed deacons, and if you see all of that work that's going on, you might think, well, do we really need deacons at all? Well, at the very same time as saying that, the Bible is very clear that deacons are so important, they are one of only two divinely appointed offices for the church. So the passages that we're going to think about this morning, it's, it's helpful to see the choosing of the seven in Acts 6 as the forerunner to deacons. Then you get into 1 Timothy 3 and you see the qualifications for those deacons. You see Paul addressing the church in Philippians and at the very beginning of his letter he refers to the elders and the deacons. If you put all of that together, you can see that deacons are hugely important for churches to grow and flourish under God and that deacons are one of only two offices in the church. They're really important. How important? Well, you see something more of that when you see, secondly, the significance of the work of godly deacons. Now, if you're a member here, we spent um, a lot of time last year thinking about deacons. And you may well remember that as we looked at Acts 6 together, we saw that, that Luke doesn't use the noun deacon in Acts 6. He doesn't refer to the seven men who are appointed as deacons, as an office title. But it's helpful for us to see, I think, that as the early church is being formed in Acts, we are seeing the forerunners who are preparing the way for what will become the official office. Why does that matter? Here's why. When you get to 1 Timothy 3, we've got the qualifications for deacons. What are you looking for? But 1 Timothy 3 doesn't tell us a great deal about what those deacons do. And in all honesty, the whole of the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about what they do. But Acts 6 is the best place for us to go to see something of what it is that deacons do. And what's so important about Acts 6 is it's so much more than waiting at tables. So much more of an important ministry. And to understand that, we've got to see the context of Acts 4, 5, and 6. This sermon will be less than 35 minutes. So, big picture. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit descends upon an enormous crowd of Jews. And we read in Acts 2 that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Then you get to the beginning of Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the church is growing if we were living at this point in history, we'd probably say this is a revival. It's the very first revival. And in Acts 4, 5, and 6, the devil is doing everything he can to destroy this growing church. He uses three different ways, tactics, you might say, to try and do that. 
But his goal in Acts 4, 5, and 6 is to destroy this church that is growing as quickly as it is. So back in chapter 4, he tries external persecution. We read that Peter and John were arrested. They were quizzed and intimidated. If you drop down to chapter 5, you pick up that there's more persecution, then there's more imprisonment, and they're eventually flogged and censured. The devil is trying to push back this growing church. And how did the church respond? Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They responded with a prayer meeting. That was the right response in Acts chapter 4. Now in Acts 5, they've got a different problem. The devil tried to destroy the church from inside by showing and exposing a moral scandal that would destroy the witness of the church. See, if you can't convince the Christians themselves to stop telling people about Jesus because you might get persecuted, the devil's next tactic is, I'm going to destroy the witness of the church themselves so that anybody looking on wouldn't want to listen to anything that they've got to say because they're just a bunch of hypocrites. So you get to Ananias and Sapphira. And most of you will know that story. If not, you can read it this afternoon. It's solemn reading. They had some land. And as was the way in the early church, there was a need. So many in the church, including Ananias and Sapphira, they sold some of their land. And they gave some of their money to the church. So far, so good. The problem was they lied. They said that they'd given all of their money to the church. But actually, they'd held some back for themselves. They were lying because they wanted other people to think they were more generous than they were. If you look at verses 5 and 10, the response, in this case administered by God himself, is an extreme form of church discipline. Both of them died. Their deaths were a lesson to the church. God will not tolerate moral compromise. It breaks his law, it dishonors his name, and it brings the gospel into disrepute. Now, in chapter 6, the devil moves into tactic number 3. A much more subtle tactic. This one is to stir up ethnic division and disunity in the church. If you look at what we've read, Luke tells us, verse 1, that, that Greek-speaking Jews said that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. And practically and spiritually, that's a massive problem. That's not like Asda send you a message tomorrow and say, oh, we hadn't realized that it's a bank holiday today. Your click and collect will be available on Tuesday. And you just go to the freezer and get some more food out. Practically speaking, these widows have no way of providing for themselves. When they converted from Judaism to Christianity, they surrendered the availability of the synagogue's care for them. Which means that this distribution of bread, this church food bank is literally the only way they're going to eat. Physically, either this distribution works or these dear people will starve. 
but spiritually, it's a massive deal too. We have spent enough time as a church family in Ephesians recently to be familiar with how important the unity of the church is. So we looked in uh, Ephesians 4. Paul tells us there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul's saying, just look at the mess of the fall. It has ruined all of God's goodness. Now you see division and discrimination and all sorts of separation going on all over the place, which is horrendously sinful because God made men and women in his image. So what's going on in the church? What you should see in the church is God reforming the goodness of that united humanity. Where under God, men and women as brothers and sisters in Christ are together the sons and daughters of God and nothing else matters. And then you've got this threat to all of that glorious picture because for some reason there's a group of people who aren't being fairly given the food they need. It's a threat to the good picture of the unity of the church, which is showing us all that God is doing in humanity. It's a physical threat. It's a spiritual threat. It's also a spiritual distraction. And I, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean it in the sense that this is really important, but it's going to distract the apostles from the work that they'd been called to do. So in verse 2, the apostles totally get that the devil is trying to consume their time with important social needs. They are important. It's not that they're not important. Somebody do the work that doesn't matter. It's, a, it's so important. We need people who are able to be responsible for that so that we can be responsible for what we've been called to do. So do you see how important this moment is in the early church? This is the devil's third strike to try and knock the church out. So what would you do? If you were the apostles in this situation, would you call a prayer meeting? Acts 4. Would you start church discipline? Acts 5. Would you get hold of all of the Hellenistic widows and say, oh, sorry, the Hebraic, uh, yeah. Would you say that the Hellenistic widows are just complaining? Just be content with what you've got and stop being sinful. That's not what the apostles do. God gives them the wisdom to see that this is a really important window where we need to preserve the unity of the church by appointing what we now call the seven. The seven men. We think of them, I think, helpfully as those proto-deacons. And their responsibility is to turn this responsibility over to them, verse 3, so that the elders, the apostles, can do what they've been entrusted to do. Now, if we had time, there's loads more that we could say at this point. Um, it would be fascinating to spend some time looking at the fact that of all the seven names listed, all of them are Greek names. So you think about what's going on. You've got Hebraic Jewish apostles who appoint 
Seven, probably, if their names are an indication of where they've come from, Hellenistic men to respond to a need that is affecting the Hellenistic widows. It is a beautiful description of the gospel at work in reconciling this kind of a struggle. Or we could spend time, if you look in verses 3 and 5, you see how the congregation are responsible for choosing these men. Brothers and sisters choose seven men. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose, and on the list goes. And then in verse 6, you've got the apostles themselves who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the whole church family is involved at different points in the process. That sets the foundation for the way that we have sought to appoint elders and deacons in our church. But what I want to focus on this morning is the result. What's the result of having godly deacons? Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Because there were godly deacons... The gospel was preached, the hungry were fed, and there's this lovely detail about the priests, and I don't want to overread into this, but it did strike me this week, that as this new covenant community is starting to put into practice the priesthood of all believers, some of the priests of the old covenant come to see the wisdom of God in the new That's how significant the work of deacons is. They are not just model servants responsible for forms, fabric, and finances. Acts 6 is showing us the work is much bigger than that. Their ministry may be practical, but the goal is preserving unity and enabling others to serve as God has called them to serve. And that matters in every vocation. Whatever the Lord has called you to do, there's a lot of humdrum in your daily routine. The way you keep going is by fixing your eyes on the goal that motivates you to keep doing the work. Many of you will know um, the story of President Kennedy who went to visit NASA's space center uh, in 1962. President Spots this cleaner while he's on this official tour, stops the tour, goes over to the cleaner and says, hi, I'm Jack Kennedy, what are you doing? And the cleaner looks straight up at him and says, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Now you might think, you have just swallowed the NASA branding manual. (laughs) Really? It's just a bit naive to think that What you're doing is part of that. But I think he's right. And I think he gives us as Christians a helpful example to see how we need to keep holding before us the goal that we are all working to. Whether the Lord calls you to be an elder, a deacon, a faithful member of the church, however your ministry looks, the goal for all of us is to bring God glory by bringing the gospel to the nations. I don't know what your personal ministry will look like in that sphere. But that's the goal that is going to keep us going in ministry. 
Elders can't deacon the word, which is what is described in Acts 6, unless the deacons are deaconing the tables. And the deacons can't serve unless the elders are serving. It isn't a question of importance. It's a question of different roles that together enable the whole church family to tell everybody we can about Jesus and bring God glory. And the deacon's role, therefore, is much more important than money and buildings. It involves that. But they're responsible for that in such a way that in verse 3, the apostles needed men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. When the apostles were telling the congregation, right, we've got this pressing need, we need to get some people to distribute food to people who are otherwise missing out on it, the apostles didn't say, go and find some logistics experts. Or go and find some people that are in the supermarket industry. Or, or go and find some anything else people. He said, we need people who are full of wisdom because it's not just about putting food in people's plates. It's about protecting against disunity that could damage the gospel. Now, as I reflect on all of that, I am so thankful for the deacons that the Lord has blessed us with as a church family. I'm so thankful for Joe and Dave. I'm going to forget some names and that would be a bad thing. For Joe and Dave and Alistair and Gareth and Tim and Stuart, who over, I've been here six years this summer, over all of that time, and for those of you who've been in the church for longer, for even longer years than that, you've seen them live this out. You've seen something of the hours that are given up when you don't see them that shows their love and their care for the church family. And on behalf of our whole church family, I want to thank you, brothers, for what you've done. And I also want to thank your families because there are hours and hours that your families have surrendered in order for you to be able to serve the church family in the way that you have. But I also know that you need help. (laughs) And that's why we are keen to look to appoint others to come and join you. And that brings us, thirdly and finally, to see the qualifications for godly deacons in 1 Timothy. So if you want to flick over to 1 Timothy 3. uh, In verse 8, there are four specific things that are said. I think you could perhaps combine them all together to say that Paul is calling deacons to have self-discipline. They're to be worthy of respect and sincere. The word that we've translated as sincere is literally not double-tongued. Meaning every deacon is to have a reputation for being completely trustworthy in what they say. Uh, There's a, a preacher who put that really helpfully. Philip Ryken said, the word of a deacon ought to be one of the strongest guarantees in the church. People both inside and outside the church must be able to take deacons at their words. And they're to be sober and content which is not just because they're model servants that we then look towards as showing us what all Christians are to be. There's a sense in which that's true, but it's also because of the nature of the work that they're going to do. So go back to Acts 6, and what are the apostles going to do for the seven? They're going to say, we're entrusting you with the finances of the church to use those in a way that will protect 
the unity of the church and provide for those who are in need. You can't entrust that kind of work to people who are not responsible for themselves or the things that they're entrusted with. They also need to have, verse 9, a strong faith. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. It's not a requirement to teach. Elders are responsible for that. We'll get to that next week. But deacons need to have a strong faith. Why? Because their ministry isn't just forms, fabric, and finances. The goal of their ministry is to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's why when the the apostles appointed the seven, they were looking for men who were full of wisdom and the Spirit. Diaconal ministry is about stepping into all of the everyday circumstances of life and bringing to bear the wisdom and the grace of God for the benefit of the church family. All the way through the scriptures we read that what we believe shapes what we do. Sinclair Ferguson has a lovely phrase in which he simply says, theology is for living. What you think is going to shape the way you behave. So if the congregation had chosen some men who weren't really convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves every single man, woman, boy and girl who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, and to all who are saved, God's grace in the church family is to be distributed in such a way that not one person is left behind and felt in need. Unless they understand that, they're not going to be able to do the job. They have to believe in order to do. And then in verse 10, they also have to be tested and approved. And Christians have debated what that means for years. And here's the key question. Who does the testing? Deacons need to be tested, and then if there's nothing found, they are to be appointed. Who does the testing? Some would say that actually it's the church that should do that testing. That in a sense there's a kind of probationary period that prospective deacons need to go through so that the church family can see that there is no barrier to them being appointed. And that's possible. But Paul may instead be saying that we're to evaluate how God has tested them through the seasons of life that he's already brought them through. Because the key issue involved isn't ability to perform a function, it's character. So what are you supposed to look for? You're supposed to look for men who are not new converts, who've not had any struggles in their life and don't really yet have opportunity to see how to live out their faith in the difficult seasons of life. You're looking for people who have had that crucible experience, who have seen that Life in this fallen world is hard and I need to trust Jesus Christ every single moment through it. That's what you're looking for in that tested and approved verse. Now as a church family, we spent a lot of time last year thinking about who in verse 11 
Paul was referring to when he speaks of the women or the wives there. And essentially, there are three options. Either Paul is talking about the wives of male deacons, or he's talking about women who assist the male deacons, or he's talking about women who are themselves deacons. And each of us will be more persuaded by one of those conclusions than another. Of the period of the last 18 months or so, we went through a process that settled with a practice of only appointing men as deacons, and we're committed as a church family to honoring the outcome of that process. But just think back to the three options that you've got when you come to that text. Either it's wives who are serving their husbands, or it's female assistants who are serving the deacons, or it was women who are serving as deacons. In any of those options, women are serving alongside the deacons to be a blessing to the whole church family. And we need to not miss that. Whatever your title may be or may not be, we are all able to serve in that diaconal sense. What did we look at earlier in Mark's gospel? Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant, the deacon of all. So godly deacons are to have self-discipline, have a strong faith, and have been tested and approved. Finally, verse 12 Deacons are to have a godly example at home. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Paul is not saying, for deacons indeed, or for elders, that every single one must be married or have a family. Or Paul would be disqualifying himself from ministry. What Paul is saying is that if you look at any one of these possible candidates, they need to be godly in whatever home circumstance the Lord has called them to. So if they're single, can you see in their life that they use their time, their treasure, their talents to be a blessing, to pour into other people and to be a good and godly deacon in the lower sense of the word, in the, in the non-official office sense? If you're looking at somebody who's married, can you look at their marriage and know full well, as Matthew reminded us last Sunday when we were thinking about marriage, that no earthly human marriage is perfect. That's not the bar. But can you see them putting the gospel into practice in their marriage? Can you see them as men being the lead repenters in their home? Can you see them showing to their wives and their kids what it means to be people who keep coming back to Jesus, repenting, knowing the assurance of forgiveness, and pressing on in the Christian life? That's what you're looking for when it comes to men who are faithful to their wives and manage their children and households well. Which when you stop and think about it, It's quite an intimidating list for quite an intimidating role. But the Lord understands that, and Paul understood that, which is why he wrote verse 13. Here's the encouragement. Here's the, the great promise to keep you going. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the promise. Here's the great goal. Here's the encouragement. 
for all those who are serving as deacons to carry on, for those who are thinking about it to see the promise of what is on offer. God promises to bless you with the gifts of respect and assurance in increasing measure. In a right and a good sense, as you live out your calling as Acts and Timothy show as it's lived out, there is a good sense in which a church family says, we are so thankful for you. Respect your wisdom. Respect the way that you are using the deep truths of the faith to wise decision-making in all of the things that are involved in a church family. But perhaps even more wonderful than that, as you do so, you grow not just in assurance, but great assurance in your faith. Being a deacon means you are constantly stepping into that crucible. We sometimes say, don't we, that um, this might be hard. Well, when it comes to the office of deacon, really the only description is this is going to be hard. Because one of the key parts of being a deacon is to keep stepping into that breach that might threaten the unity of the church. And as you keep doing that, what happens? You wear holes through your trousers as you pray and pray and pray for wisdom from above. You build deeper relationships with your fellow deacons. You build deeper relationships with your brothers and sisters in the church as you are putting all of that faith into action. And through that, the Lord gives you great assurance. We're going to pray now before we sing. I want us to pray for our deacons and for those whom God will raise. With all of that echoing in our heads, surely we will be reminded afresh of how important this work is. Let's pray that God would sustain those who are serving and raise up others to do the same. Great God in heaven, we thank you that as we read the whole of your word, we see your wisdom and your understanding of our needs from beginning to end. We saw it in the Old Testament with the insight of Jethro enabling Moses to put into place a whole structure that would be a blessing, not just for him individually, but for the entire nation. We see your wisdom as the church begins to grow so quickly at the beginning of its time in appointing the seven, and then as the roles became more established in creating the office of deacon in order to ensure that with all of the offices serving faithfully, your people would be well taught and well cared for. There would be men concerned and dedicated to prayerfully preserving the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And Father, as we look around us at the world today, we see that our cultural norms are challenging any kind of unity as we see in the gospel. See people dividing over everything. People standing upon their rights and demanding of others. 
And Father, as we look into our own hearts, we know that that sinful spirit is alive within us too. We long to kill it, but still wrestle with it in our own hearts. So Father, as we recognize the world in which we live, we see the goodness of your grace in blessing us with elders and deacons. Father, we thank you with all of our hearts for the deacons who are currently serving and for those who have served for the last 37 years in this church family. Perhaps only you know, even above their wives and family, of the weight and responsibility that has been laid upon them, of the hours that they have put in when nobody else sees, of the conversations they've had with our church family in order to provide and care, but also to preserve that sense of unity. What an enormous ministry that has been. That we may never fully understand, even when we get to glory, how much they have given in order to be a blessing. Father, please would you encourage our deacons afresh. Please would you help them not to sink into that feeling that can so often, I imagine, be a temptation for them of, of all that I'm doing is, is forms and finance and fabric. Father, would you help them to see that that practical ministry is for such an important goal? And would you please bless them with what we have just been thinking? of that lovely sense, that right and good sense of the respect of a church family who love them and are thankful for them and of their own growing great assurance in their faith. Father, we long for their ministry to be a joy to them as it is a blessing to us. And so too, Father, we look to the future and we see that as you graciously grow our church family, our needs are growing too. We long to be able to recognize other men who are faithfully putting this kind of diaconal care into practice on the ground. We long to see you raise up more men who are full of wisdom and of the Spirit who will be able to join that team and to be a blessing to them. Father, we ask this knowing that you are the giver of all good gifts. None of us love this church family more than you do. Please, would you equip us with every man and woman that we need in order to be doing all of the work that goes on throughout the course of the week. But in this particular office, would you raise up other men to be a blessing to our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.